Welcome to the May 2019 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ. There was a mercifully quiet month in immigration law from May for a change, but there's still quite a few decisions from the Court of Appeal to be aware of, particularly on asylum and trafficking, as well as an important process change for Zambrano applicants. There's a useful judgment on damages for unlawful detention from the European Court of Human Rights and a new shortage occupation list coming in, which is quite a big change. And if there's time, we're also going to chat about the EU settlement scheme and the new Immigration Services Commissioner. Right, CJ, over to you. As you say, Colin, we'll start with news that the Home Office's policy on age assessment is unlawful. Uh, that is according to Lord Justices Baker and Underhill, but not Lord Justice Simon, who dissented in the case. So a split court of appeal on this one. The citation is BF Eritrea and Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2019 EWCA Civ 872. The essential issue was whether immigration officers are able to make a decision that someone is over the age of 18 on the basis that their physical appearance and demeanour very strongly suggests that they are significantly over 18. Some other caveats and boarding around that, but that was the key phrase that was under scrutiny in official guidance. And the majority said that this wording didn't properly reflect just how uncertain a business these kind of age assessments are when you're just judging on how someone looks and acts. Uh, and so the court felt that it created a real risk of children being unlawfully detained. Colin, how big a difference will this make? Because I get the sense from the judgment that a home office age assessment isn't the be-all and end-all. They'll get professional social workers involved to do a proper one at some stage. Yeah, it's a tricky area of practice because the the concern that many lawyers and um, campaigners have is that not only do the Home Office have a sort of institutional incentive perhaps to kind of underestimate age um, or overestimate age rather, I suppose, um, but social services do as well because... Um, if it turns out that the person concerned is under the age of 18, then it triggers a whole load of duties on the, the local authority and they have to take proper care of somebody as opposed to essentially washing their hands of them. Um, so you know, there's quite a few cases have come up in practice where local authorities have been uh, found to be getting it wrong on age assessment just as much as the Home Office has been. And then you have to get in independent age assessors and there's litigation and so on. So it, it's a really welcome judgment for for kids um, and if if it, if this works, if if the the change to the policy sticks, and as I understand it, the Home Office is appealing, so you know this may go up to the Supreme Court. And um, as you pointed out in the blog post yourself, you know there's a a split um, in the in the Court of Appeal on this, so you know it's not necessarily the last word we'll see. But if this judgment does stick and the the Home Office does amend the policy and 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 that, and that, that stays. Um, then hopefully, and it's not often you'll hear lawyers saying this, but hopefully that will put a, a stop to this area of work. You know, ideally, we wouldn't have to be bringing these cases um, to challenge age assessments, and the Home Office and local authorities would simply be um, accepting that people probably are under the age of 18, if that's what they say, and if they look like they're still a, a young person. And I thought it was an interesting... Oh, go on. Yeah, I was just going to say, I didn't realise it was that big a, a deal, I suppose, that it would have that big a impact on practice if, it, if, as you say, it sticks. Yeah, it could could destroy a whole area of work for lawyers, which is which is a great thing, frankly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's, um, I thought it was an interesting analogy that was drawn about the, um, the, the way that, um, you know, you expect uh, pubs and um, off-licenses to look at age and the kind of um, under 25 approach that um, is, is challenge 25 I think is sort of official terminology for it that they they use and and that would be a much more sensible much clearer way of um, conducting these age assessments in future. 
Yeah, so the Court of Appeals sort of saying that if somebody looks under 25, they could be under 18. So you've got that big a margin for error. Um, and yeah, that would really, I suppose, help a lot of people if they did take that approach. Yeah, I suspect that's not actually what's going to happen in practice. And it's probably optimistic, wishful thinking on my part to think that you know we won't need to bring any more of the, these challenges. But um, it may well be that the age assessors simply act on gut instinct and they'll continue to act on gut instinct and they'll use you know just express their reasons differently in future but um let's let's hope that's not the case yeah well in the meantime uh, pending the uh, possible appeal to the supreme court the home office has temporarily changed its guidance put out a sort of holding version pending an appeal um i was sort of cynical in my article about how long it would take to issue this uh, temporary version uh, but they actually put it out the day after I published it which uh, <laughs> is embarrassing for me um, but it may have helped that uh, Lord Justice Underhill said in the judgment they expected this to happen ASAP um, it doesn't always as I as I highlighted in the piece um, so take a look if you are in an age uh, dispute argument there is revised guidance out uh, now pending the kind of final resolution on appeal Next, the Upper Tribunal is going to have to reconsider its country guidance decision on whether Kabul is safe for would-be asylum seekers to flee to rather than having to go abroad and seek asylum abroad. The Tribunal basically made a mistake with the maths. It said that the rate of death and injury from armed conflict and security incidents in Kabul was 1 in 10,000 people, when in fact it's 1 in 1,000 people. So out by a factor of 10, and the Court of Appeal has basically said you need to plug the right number into your decision-making and, and make your decision again. The case is AS Afghanistan and Secretary of State 2019 EWCA Civ 873. Um, Colin, you'd actually predicted that this was going to happen in an article uh, a few months back. Yeah, there was a sort of odd, unusual for the Court of Appeal, there was a um, preliminary um, judgment that was issued about a, a sort of slightly obscured legal issue about whether the tribunal could correct its own mistake and so on. And it was pretty clear at that point what the ultimate outcome was going to be. Um, there's a really good post by Ali Bandagani um, pointing out that you know this is going to go back to the upper tribunal, but the... The, the, the situation has changed basically since the evidence was heard the, fir the first time. So UNHCR have changed their position, which is quite significant, and um, things have moved on. So um, it's not a question of it really going back just to be corrected. It seems likely that the upper tribunal is going to have to look um, at the whole thing afresh. And that means that in the meantime, um, the existing country guidance that the Court of Appeal said was unlawful um, isn't binding. It's not really country guidance anymore. Is there a. What do practitioners do to who would have been that case would have been relevant to is there like an old country guidance case they fall back on or there just isn't a country guidance case i, I actually can't think off the top of my head i can't remember when the the previous country guidance on um relocation to Kabul came i think it was it was pretty old i think by the time this new one version had come out yeah yeah but probably probably not relevant to, to today um Great. Finally, on asylum, then, there is a decision of the Court of Justice of the European Union to look at. Refugees who commit serious crimes can lawfully be deprived of their refugee status under EU law. That is joint cases C39116, 7717 and 7817 MX and X. Legally speaking, Colin, this case is all about a difference between how EU law deals with withdrawing refugee protection from someone who's committed serious crimes and what the Refugee Convention says about that. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's pretty obscure this to be honest. It's 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 an important one for refugee law geeks and EU law geeks, but um not with not much in the way of sort of practical 
um, application, I think, for most people. But it, it, and it was being argued in this case that um, the different approaches of the EU law qualification directive on refugee status and the Refugee Convention meant that there was some sort of incompatibility between the two. Um, and basically, um, the, the court has said, well, it's, they are different, but that's not the same as being incompatible. And you can lose your EU law refugee status, but that doesn't mean that you lose your Refugee Convention refugee status. Um, it, it could be relevant in exclusion cases, and it can be relevant about whether you sort of retain the extra benefits that EU law brings to a refugee um, in terms of additional sorts of EU law rights. Um, but it's not likely to affect that many people. Um, and... Yeah, so it's a, it's a fairly obscure point, really. Fair enough. Highfalutin refugee law, perhaps, that one. Uh, let's go to Zambrano. As you mentioned at the outset, we have a big change in the process uh, for Zambrano applications. So Zambrano carers, these are uh, non-EU citizens who have a, an EU law right to stay in the UK where they're looking after a British dependent, uh, usually a child, but, but can be an adult as well. We had an adult case uh, in the last few months. Nath has picked up on a change in the Home Office policy when it comes to Zambrano carer applications. They now say that if a carer can apply under the UK immigration rules, they must do so, or they won't even be considered for the Zambrano, Zambrano route. So, putting up extra hurdles for these vulnerable carers, Carl? Yeah, and as Nath says in her really good post on this, it, it's removed the element of um, choice that there may have been previously. And it was pretty limited element of choice, but there was perhaps some. And there, there would have been some people where they could have made an application under Appendix FM, which was perhaps likely to fail, um, but potentially if it did succeed, um, might lead to ILR, which Zambrano um, never did. Um, but you've got the much cheaper option under Zambrano, just £65, as opposed to you know, coming up to £2,000, I think it is, uh, for, for most Appendix FM applications. So, um, yeah, there, there was this potential element of choice for some people, and the Home Office is basically trying to get rid of that. And the, the big question is going to be, you know, do you really have to make a potentially pointless uh, human rights application, which you strongly suspect is going to be refused, at considerable cost and considerable delay, in order to sort of open this Zambrano gateway now, is that going to be lawful? Is there going to be a challenge to this to this new policy? Um, what are the courts going to make of it? And um, you know, the answer is that the courts have been extremely reluctant to recognise Zambrano rights. Um, it would be, I don't know, I'd, I'd be pleasantly surprised, I suppose, if, um, if if this Home Office policy didn't end up um, sticking. And you mentioned that Zambrano has never led to ILR, but sort of interestingly, pretty much the same day as they announced this policy change, they opened the EU settlement scheme to Zambrano carers. Um, so on the one hand, you now can get an indefinite leave to remain as a Zambrano carer, which you couldn't before the settlement scheme. But on the other hand, it's harder than ever to get onto the Zambrano route in the first place. Yeah, and it's a point that NAF makes, which is that they perhaps um, this policy is with a view to restricting access to an EU settled status scheme um, for, for the people who might have benefited from it. Yes, it, it was literally, I think, the same day or the day after uh, they opened it. So the, the timing does seem like there's a link. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, lots more practical advice, as you say, in Nat's post, which is called uh, Big Home Office Policy Change. Zambrano carers need to make a human rights application first. Uh, that is on the website. Take a look if you work with Zambrano carers. 
On to business immigration, there is going to be an expanded list of shortage occupations for work visas. One job in 10 will now be on the list as proposed by the Migration Advisory Committee. I gather that the Home Office pretty much always accepts the committee's recommendations when it comes to the shortage occupation list, so that's very likely a done deal. Colin, I think it's sort of important, though, to be clear what this is and what it isn't, the, the list, because some of the media coverage would have you think that there would just be more work visas, but I don't think that's the effect of the shortage occupation list. No, it shouldn't be. And it, the, it, it means that if you, if you put on the shortage occupation list, it means that you don't have to meet the resident labour test, which is um, where the employer has to advertise in a certain way for a certain period of time. And it's kind of often an administrative formality. Um, it's also, I think, a bit. it works out a bit cheaper, basically, if you're on the um, shortage occupation list. But basically, it gives you extra points um, if the cap is being met and it gives you priority over other professions um, if if the cap is being met. So it shouldn't increase um, the number of people who are succeeding under the, the tier two route, um, but it means that the, the sort of composition of that, that um, contribution might well change. And it may well be that um, those who aren't on the choice occupation list are basically being pushed out if the if the um, annual limit keeps on being met. Yeah, I think that's the key thing, isn't it? For as long as the cap is still in place, it's just sort of reshuffling the priority within the um, couple of thousands work visas a month that are available. Um, there is, though, I think a possible knock-on benefit to refugees with an expanded list because they can, or sorry, asylum seekers, should I say, because asylum seekers can work jobs that are on the shortage occupation list um, if they've been in the UK for a certain length of time. So that, that seems like good news. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good point that you made in your, I think it was you who wrote, that, wrote this one up actually. And um, it is a really good point um, because the the way that the Home Office responded to an EU law requirement that asylum seekers be allowed to work, but only conditionally on certain national rules and so on, was the Home Office basically said, well, fine, but we'll only allow them to, to work for jobs on the shortest occupation list, which at that time was extremely narrow. Um, so this broadening out, um, still, they're, they're very high skilled jobs, all of these, but um, it does mean that there may well be some refugees who, who could work under the shortest occupation list. Now, if they've been waiting for six months or more for an initial decision, and as we know from looking at the quarterly stats and so on, that's an increasing number of asylum seekers because the Home Office is increasingly not meeting its six-month um, time limit. Yeah, absolutely. I think they've abandoned it altogether in the last few months. Cool. So the just to be clear, I suppose the new shortage occupation list hasn't been signed off yet. It's not yet in the rules. Uh, this is just a, the recommended version, but we'd expect it will be um, put in in the next uh, few weeks or at least a couple of months. And we'll let listeners and readers know when it is out. Um, unlawful detention. There is a new case from the European Court of Human Rights, which may well be of interest to those claiming damages for unlawful detention. It is VM and United Kingdom number two, application number 62824-16. This was basically about what happens when someone is detained in breach of the Home Office's own policy, but their detention would have been lawful if they had been following the policy correctly. Um, our courts say you can only get nominal damages in that situation, but here the European court is saying you can get proper compensation, which sounds like it could be a big one. It could be, but it might not be. Um, it could be It could be a sort of the beginning of a, a new trend where the court is looking at um, you know, basically compliance with the policy as opposed to um, the sort of substance of whether you would have been detained otherwise or not. 
Um, but it, it could turn, and Alex makes this point, I think, to be fair, in his, his blog post, um, or it could turn out to be a bit of a blip and um, normal service will resume um, afterwards. So yeah, it sort of remains to be seen, but it's certainly an interesting development. Very well. Our next topic is the EU settlement scheme, which went live at the end of March. This is for EU citizens to get the right to stay after Brexit, essentially. There have been a couple of reports, which we covered on the website, into how the scheme is going. Rather conflicting reports, in a way. The immigration inspector praised the scheme, saying that the pilot phase, at any rate, was a success. Whereas the Home Affairs Committee of MPs found all sorts of problems in a highly critical report just weeks later. I think the essential difference between the two is that the inspector is just looking at the efficiency of how the scheme is delivered, whereas the committee is stepping back, taking a look at the big picture and whether this is a good offer for EU citizens overall. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and it's um, the report by the chief inspector is quite, it's quite entertaining reading in a way. And it's clear that this is going pretty well as far as um, home office projects go that's not a particularly high standard has to be said um and it, it, it's sort of notable that um, there's a few bits of sort of damning with faint praise you know um the the staff seem to be largely new they haven't really had a chance to start getting disillusioned yet and and, and so on and so forth but no i mean it sort of taking the mick here a bit but uh, no it's it very positive report and it's it's you know for, for the vast majority of eu citizens who are having to go through this it's um it's a pretty good process as far as home office processes go but as you say the um the mps were looking at it's a, in a bit more kind of analytical way and also what's the end result for eu citizens and and who's not going to be benefiting from the, the approach the home office takes and um as you say they they are really quite critical about what this might mean for people um who's going to get left behind by this what's the impact going to be on them how might they regularize themselves after the deadline passes and so on and there's lots of stuff that we just don't know and that the committee was quite unimpressed by um the lack of information from the home office and whether that's because the home office hasn't thought about these things or they're just not willing to say things at this point is a bit of a moot point really i i suspect the home office is thinking about these things but they're just not willing to to tell us yet yeah there's a lot of familiar ground in a sense in the report um possibly because you gave evidence to it and you're quoted i think half a dozen times in it uh, so I think some of the themes that you've been raising on the blog and other contributors have been raising over the last couple of years have maybe made their way into the report. Yeah, it's good to see um, our concerns getting an airing. And um, yeah, it was sort of, um, me and a few others were, were giving oral evidence um, to the committee on this. And it was, you know, it was it's nice to see that being taken on board. You're, you're too humble, Colin. I'm giving you an opportunity to show off here. <laughs> you're, not, uh, you're not taking it. Uh, uh, I, I thought the committee made a a really good point that um, I think was new to me that, uh, you know, in terms of how the scheme was set up, uh, you know, an application process versus just blanket granting people status, they said, okay, you don't want to simply give a blanket grant of status without any proof that people have it, because that's what made life difficult for the Windrush generation, and that's the Home Office's argument. But the committee said, well, you could combine that general legal magic wand with the current system for processing people and get the best of both worlds like what's what's the problem with just doing that and i thought the the home office was being pretty disingenuous about this it wasn't just the home office it was you know the home secretary saying this himself in person um you know 
the reasons for the problems experienced by the Windrush generation wasn't the declaratory approach that was taken back in the 1970s. It was the hostile environment that the government introduced from 2012 onwards. You know, they weren't having these problems with employment and health care and accommodation and so on until new laws were passed, which caused them really serious problems. And that, you know, we've seen this with all the investigation into Windrush. The Home Office well knew that this was going to cause problems for some long-term lawful residents, but they just went ahead anyway. So, you know, the Home Office is right that if you don't change the hostile environment, if you don't change these new laws that have been introduced, then a declaratory system um, alone causes all sorts of problems. But you could, you know, roll back those laws. You, you, and also, as you say, you can, you can mitigate, as the committee says, you can mitigate by um, combining declaratory with also issuing um, paperwork as well and encouraging people to apply. Yeah, and I suppose it's that hostile slash compliant environment of, of immigration checks that EU citizens are going to experience if they don't apply or are rejected under the, the settled status scheme. Yeah, and it's a bit concerning when you see some prominent people saying that they're not going to apply and so on. And I kind of I've got a lot of sympathy for that. And I, I think you know, if there was a real groundswell of people saying that and, and, and we then saw disastrous effects on those people and they, they knew what they were signing up for, then you know, well and good. Civil disobedience has a has a role and so on. But um I'm not sure everybody who is advocating that necessarily understands the impact that it's going to have on them and their families. Absolutely. It's, it's a risky one. I, I must at this point give a plug to our Settled Status Handbook, which is newly updated and available on the website at the low, low price of 9.99 or free if you are a free movement member. Moving on then, we wanted to give a mention to a trafficking decision in the Court of Appeal. This is N and R or N versus R, do you say, with the criminal case? Uh, N against the Crown, I guess. N against the Crown, there, there you are. Um, you can tell them they've been an advocate. Uh, 2019 EWCA CRIM 752, so um, as the citation suggests, a criminal judgment uh, concerning the issue of trafficking victims being prosecuted for criminal offences. In one of these, uh, there was a joint cases, so in one of them... Uh, N pleaded guilty to growing cannabis, but should really have been supported as a trafficking victim. And the Court of Appeal overturned the conviction as unsafe. Colin, you, you wrote this up. You say we've been here before, really. And the, the courts have made clear years ago that this sort of thing should be happening. Yeah, so it was all the more surprising to see. Um, and it's very, first of all, it's very disappointing to see that trafficking victims are still being so badly let down. You know, there were multiple opportunities by multiple agencies to refer this guy to the National Referral Mechanism. Um, and, and recognise him as a victim of trafficking early and you know, repeatedly the authorities failed. Um, but then to see the, the Crown, um, the government, trying to defend this on the basis that he pleaded guilty uh, and was, was personally culpable in some way was very disappointing. Although, as I say in the, um, the write-up, it seems that the um, uh, barrister for, for the, the government had uh, somewhat kind of rode back from that a bit in, in, in that case at the actual hearing. Um, it's combined with another case. So I think it's linked cases. There's another case here where the conviction was upheld, and that was a very different scenario. You had somebody who, a really very troubling case where you've got somebody who themselves had been trafficked in the past, um, but had then become um, an exploiter themselves, um, and their conviction. It was, um, it was a lady. Her conviction was upheld. Yeah, interestingly, there's been a sort of a backlash just this weekend about. I suppose scenarios like this and, and the modern slavery legislation. The the Sunday Times has done a expose basically saying that the modern slavery laws and the protections for 
victims are being abused by criminals who are pretending to be victims. I don't know if you saw that coverage at all. Well, I've missed that completely, but I guess um, it could be said that this case would meet that description. Um, She she had certainly been a victim in the past, but that was no excuse for the behaviour that she'd shown latterly, where she'd been um, involved in trafficking uh, women for prostitution, it seemed. Yeah, I mean, what is the general rule on prosecuting people who are who have been trafficked i mean presumably it's not even with this um one helpful decision it's not a blanket immunity that that you have if you're um recognized as a victim i mean you couldn't get away with a you know murder or manslaughter presumably yeah it was a bit beyond my um bit beyond my comfort zone frankly sort of advising on criminal appeal stuff i, I think there's this we should maybe do a podcast or something with someone like dan bunting or or, or philippa southwell who who are involved in this um it's i think there's still a public interest test involved and so generally the 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 view is that it's not in the public interest to prosecute somebody who's been a victim of trafficking and and effectively the sort of duress style defense um but i think the the second case the 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 woman's case shows that even where somebody has been a victim of trafficking it's not some sort of trump card and there may well be a, a public interest in prosecution on the facts of the case. Yeah, it makes sense. That's a more nuanced thing than some sort of blanket, blanket immunity. Um, excellent. Finally, then, our piece of good news to end the podcast. The vacancy for Immigration Services Commission, Commissioner will shortly be filled. The new commissioner is John Tuckett, who takes office this summer. Uh, not an expert in immigration, it must be said, but he does have an impressive CV in terms of leadership roles in the public sector. And before he went into management, he used to uh, command submarines for the Royal Navy, which is cool. Yeah, a bit of a sort of standout um, feature of his CV, that one, isn't it? And does invite um, puns of, of, of a certain nature, sort of a whole hole below water or sinking ships or, or, or something of that nature, doesn't it? Yeah, we saw a few on Twitter, but um, maybe they're maybe they're too cheesy for a respectable podcast like we this. We wouldn't so. be so low as to engage in, in punning of that no, nature. Uh, well, we have pitched for an interview with Mr. Tuckett when he does take office uh, to the Office of the Immigration Services Commissioner. Um, so maybe we'll even get him on the podcast or, or at any rate on the website. We'll follow it up um, when he takes office. But yeah, good news in the sense well I couldn't use it in the sense that there is a commissioner but you know it's been vacant for four years which is bizarre I mean surely is it not unlawful to leave a statutory post unfilled or it certainly seems bizarre I mean the RSC seems to have been well led in the meantime by, by Dr Lee and you know they've been getting on with all sorts of things we've seen a number of high high profile prosecutions come through recently and, and several convictions um, so that, and they've been managing okay, but it, it's it, it does seem surprising that the post could be left vacant for so long, and it it does sort of make one wonder what was going on behind the scenes and and why that was. But I, I, I don't have any answers to that. Yeah, well, just welcome the fact that there is a commissioner, and again, we'll just confirm for readers whenever he does take office. It's sort of the the vague time frame of the summer, which could be October or November by Home Office standards, but we'll see. Does that give me an opportunity to mention the hunt for Red October? No, I don't. <laughs> All right, well, I think that wraps us up for this one. So thanks very much, and we'll be back next month. Bye. Bye.